You know why I'm so passionate about Music to Code By? Because it works. I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you, who sail effortlessly through hours of coding. There's only one problem. They can't get enough. Well, not only are we up to track 13, but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price. The collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago, still only a little more than four bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only three bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1368, with guest Vishwas Lele, recorded Thursday, October 13th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we got a studio show for you today. No more live shows for a while. Although, we got some while. coming up, huh? I'm sure there'll be a few, but we'll see what happens. You know, what happens? We're, we're hither and yon. So this comes out after Dev Intersection, yep. and I hope you all had a good time. I know we did. I know we did. I mean, I hope we did. I'm pretty sure we did. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we did, too. It's going to really suck if the, you know, <laughs> Las Vegas burnt down or something. It's like, we're dead in this video, this audio recording. So, we had a great time. We had a you great lied. time. Yeah. <laughs> we're hoping that everything went as well as we think it's going to go. How's that? Nice. All right. I This time shifting stuff kills me. Sometimes. Anyway, I've got something really cool. Uh, it's actually an idea that I had years ago, and now somebody's done it. Big surprise. Roll the music. I'll tell you all about it. All right, dude, what do you got? This being show 1368, if you go to 1368.pwop.me, you can find skillflow.io or just skillflow. Hmm. Get this. Real-time help from expert developers on any Slack team. Skillflow is a real-time collaboration tool for developers built right into your existing workflow. Unlike traditional Q&A forums like Stack Overflow with a little heart, you know, I don't know, because maybe somebody, I don't know what that little heart is for. <laughs> I don't know. It, it might be a wink. It might be, uh, I don't know. It's just making a happy noise. That's happy all. noise, yep. Unlike Q&A forms like Stack Overflow, Skillflow directly notifies potential problem solvers and initiates a real-time chat so that your problem is directly addressed and no time is wasted waiting for people to discover your question because John Skeet has nothing better to do than to answer the same question over and over and over and over again. <laughs> I'm pretty give, sure he's going to cut and paste at some point. Give the guy a break. Actually, He's busy rescuing princesses, for God's sake. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, uh, the other thing it says on the website is, get help and assist others. Skillflow harnesses the power of the developer community and therefore is 100% free. Just be sure to return the favor and help out fellow developers in need. Nice. All right. So, being somebody who runs... 
what would be considered a forum by some people, but it's really not a Facebook user group. Right. Um, I have a private user group for the ketogenic diet. It's called mm-hmm. uh, Two Keto Dudes. And uh, we, it's private. In other words, you have to ask for permission. We try to weed out the bots. But I've noticed something, and that is over and over again, people ask the same questions. You, okay, so we post a fact. Okay, they're still answering. Okay, they're still not reading the fact, and they're asking the same questions. Okay, so we pin a post, and the post has the rules, and the fact is all over it. Right. No, they still no, don't read that. Either. Nope, they don't read that. However, if you go to a forum like Stack Overflow, the protocol is not to jump in and ask your question. It's to search for your question because chances are somebody else has already had it. Right. That's the protocol. And guess, uh, I never ask a question in Stack Overflow. No, it's always you, finding. You type your question into the search bar and you get the flipping answer. Right. It's faster. It's faster. And guess what? John Skeet doesn't have to answer the same question over and over and over again. I, I love this idea of skill flow, but I think that, you know, the, I, I'm not so sure this is better than, uh, I mean, they talk about wasting time. You're wasting a lot of people's time by a- having them answer the same question over and over. I guess the question is always, if within your organization, if you can't find the answer, because Slack does lead you to to asking questions too, right? You sure. search first. Sure. Then to be, this is just another level of search that sort of maps to individuals. Yep. As long as people follow the protocol, it's a good thing. It's yeah. a last line of defense, if you call it that. If you, It's actually new information. Yeah. All right, dude. Not yeah. bad. But it is an interesting idea, and uh, I kind of like it. It's at skillflow.io. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grab your comment off of show 1212, the one we did with one Vishwas Lele when we were talking about cloud oriented program. No idea. I don't know what that mm. guy knows, really. Really? I, actually, that was a cool show. It was a, it was a great conversation. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Aaron Morgan says, I got pumped for Azure Worker Roles and queuing back in June while binging on .NET Rocks during a flight, episode 1143 with Mark Brown, amongst others. I got off the plane with all the best intentions, but life happened, and I never got around to trying it. Mm. Listening to Vishwas today got me motivated again, and when the boss was working late today, I sat down and refactored, I think the boss in this case is his spouse probably I, I that's it she was working late so i was able to sit down and refactor part of my application to be asynchronous of course that was a big part of our conversation and really utilizing the cloud properly yeah the new piece of my app was running as a worker and processing from the azure storage queue it was very simple to get going and my app is more responsive as a result i wish i'd done it earlier mm. that's awesome yeah i've gone the extra step and implemented some instrumentation diagnostics again all a breeze. Mm. Thanks for another great episode. Cool. You're welcome. Well, thank Vishwas. Yeah, the awesome is in Vishwas. Yeah. And we just help the awesome be shown. That's right. But you are certainly welcome, Aaron. I'm glad it's working for you. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We forward him to John Skeet. (laughs) 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 Got to get Skeet back on the show, I think, just to respond to all this abuse. I totally agree. Uh, And that brings us to Vishwas. Vishwas Lele is simply an Azure developer, an MVP, and he works at Applied Information Sciences, 
Welcome back to the show, Vishwas. Hey, thank you, uh, Richard and Carla. I appreciate uh, you inviting me back to the show. You were one of the first people we had on .NET Rocks really talking about Azure. It was you and Michael Stiefel. And uh, you were very excited about it from the very beginning, its potential. And now it's completely taking over the world, isn't it? Uh, yeah, you know, it is It is fascinating. The journey has been fascinating. Sort of got dropped into, you know, working on a cloud-related project. I remember uh, back in early 2008. And at that time, we had something called BizTalk Services. Azure was not even around. Yeah. And um, can't claim to have some big vision or anything like that, but just got dropped into this project for BizTalk Services. Did that project for a while, enjoyed it, and really sort of, uh, you know, from that point on, started following the story more closely. And of course, PDC happened later in 2008, where Azure was announced. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a fascinating journey and amount of releases, amount of services, and now all of the the talk about Azure uh, just is is amazing. Never mm-hmm. seen something like never seen something like this in my career in terms of you know technology coming in and cutting through uh, you know all of the existing technologies and and coming into focus in such a short period of time. Yeah. Um, the, w- your topic here is uh, API management in Azure, and. Yes. Uh, so let's let's start with the problem. What what is the problem? Too many APIs? <laughs> Too much to deal with? <laughs> that, that's that's actually the, the that's a great uh, question. Uh, this I wanted to uh, talk about uh, something called Azure API management, but of course it begs the question: What is API management? Before we delve deeper into a specific service, yeah. and uh, you know. API management is is a discipline which has been around for some time, but it is gaining a lot more momentum, I would say, in the last two or three years for for one of the many reasons that let me just enumerate them in no particular order. Okay. It is clear that there are a number of APIs and APIs have been called the engines of growth and I'm sure you've heard of all of that. So there are just too many APIs. And if you wanted to roll out an API program yourself. So let's say you are a large organization and you have a number of different APIs that different groups have produced. And you want to have a consistent experience in terms of your users coming in and finding one place and being able to look at the API, getting themselves subscribed to that API, Mm. and then able to call that in a consistent manner, getting the documentation getting all your questions answered. And I'm talking just about the internal API. The same applies for an external API as well. So that's one problem. Okay. So you want to have a, you know, a strong API program that gives you these capabilities. So that's one. Second is, of course, you want consistency of the API. I mentioned this already. And then the third is you want to have this insight about your API. You know, is this API really successful? Uh, How many people are calling it? Do you want to put a quota because you might expose an API to the partner and they may even date you with requests? Hmm. Not a a good thing. So you may want to apply some sort of a quota where uh, you tell them, hey, you've called me 5,000 times already during the day. And if you really want to call me more, you may have to sign up for a different kind of a subscription. Yeah, or you're going to have to use Skillflow or something. (laughs) Call John Skeet. He's apparently got a lot of time on his hands. 
exactly so <laughs> if you think about uh, you know these capabilities these are not things that we have built into each of our apis that we are building yeah right so so you know as they say every every problem in computer science can be solved by adding one level of interaction <laughs> one more yes <laughs> so, so so api management in a very simple way to explain is that level of interaction it's a proxy that sits between your api and the external world and gives you these capabilities that i talked about a moment ago so would you consider something like um what we used to use back in the the old xml web service days uh you know uddi or something like that discoverability and and metadata about the apis and all of that stuff w- would you consider that in the same bucket it is part of it so uddi was was really about you know going and finding you know web service that you need and finding the you know the metadata associated with that but this is a little bit more than this so if you if you look at an api management tool and it could be anything it could be azure api management or it could be something else you you're really talking about three things that typically come into play mm. so the the first thing is of course you have to have an api internal or external that you're trying to create a facade for so yeah. let's let's just say you start with an api right then what you what you have to do is you you come in into some kind of an admin portal where you say this is my facade and this facade will call into these backend api methods so you know see you need some kind of an admin interface and you know as is common these days you can do it through the ui or you can do it through some kind of scripting or some kind of a rest endpoint right. so that's one piece right the the second piece is by virtue of you coming in and def- creating this facade you are generating what is known as a developer portal so what you want to typically do is uh, you know automatically think of it as sort of a content management system if you will in a subset of that based on your facade so you're exposing these many apis these apis as these methods you create a developer portal and this is often cases uh, auto generated for you so you can tell your developers hey log in into this developer portal and start looking for your apis and oh by the way we will also give you a way to quickly try that api so okay one so thing try is, before yeah. you buy option kind of thing exactly exactly right. so try you get a little playground buy. or something for it you you can, you can get you know maybe your api developer uh, you know take for example cognitive services api which has been uh, you know lot has you know we've talked a lot about that at the recent ignite for example yeah. if you go to the cognitive services page you can subscribe and you can try it and that page or that portal is powered under the covers by azure api management so you can come in and say hey i want to try it maybe you'll get a free version of the api you get yourself a subscription key hmm. and, and and then you say you know i want to try this this face identification or or find a similar face api yeah. for example and you know i have a subscription key i can go into the portal it tells me how to invoke that rest endpoint and it even makes it easy for me to supply the parameters i make a call you know there's very interesting um, uh, you know metric out there 
when it comes to APIs, which is the time to first successful yeah. call. And, you know, the, the reason why it is important to make it easy for people and developers to consume your API is you want that time for the first successful invocation of your API to be in minutes. Right. right. So, so developers are an impatient bunch. If they have to read through a documentation or spend, you know, half an hour figuring out your API, chances are they'll move on and use some other API. That's so right. you, you have to make it really easy for them to explore your API, to give it a quick try. And then furthermore, uh, if they're developing in C Sharp, they're developing in JavaScript, what have you, be able to, you know, generate some, some sample boilerplate code to be able to call that API. So all of that together, so I talked about the admin interface. Mm. There's this developer portal where you can come in and you know you can expect to have things like a discussion board, right? You can have expect things like self sign up for an API. Mm. So you can say, you know, you can fill out this form, give us your email address, and we'll give you a free version automatically. Now, is, this, asked, is this just for uh, APIs that are within Azure, or do you do you plug your own information from APIs that might be? you know, Google-based or Amazon-based or any other uh, API for that matter? Uh, yeah, good question. So it can be API anywhere. Okay. In fact, um, it does not have to be Azure hosted. Uh, the Azure API management service itself is hosted in Azure, of course. Yeah, sure. But the backend API that you are trying to create a facade for can be anywhere. In fact, not only can it be hosted in any public location, it can actually be an internal API and you, know, you can open a VPN tunnel. Let's say that API is hosted within your data center. You can open a VPN connection and API management will traverse over that VPN connection and get to that internal API. So you're creating a facade at the Azure layer, but then you know provide access to people even for an internal API. But I also love that you're taking all this work off the table, right? Yeah, really. About uh, creating keys for people, making them register, billing, tracking of utilization. You know, you could, you could, this is, I, I'm just hoping this is just an exposure of what Azure uses under the hood to bill us for Azure usage. Uh, absolutely. So all of that capability taken away from you and, uh, is is super critical and they of course give you a bunch of out of the box policies so you can say drag and drop a policy uh, so uh, to complete my my description earlier so you have an admin piece you have a developer piece and of course you have this runtime called the proxy which is this layer of interaction that you have and once they have a layer of interaction they can inject any custom behavior ah, and then right. And that injection of custom behavior comes in the forms of policies, and they give you a bunch of out-of-the-box policies. So you can say, drop a policy, and which will allow this subscriber or this gold version of your API to only be called 5,000 times a day. Okay? So, so yeah. they will enforce, enforce that for you. And if you call it more than 5,000 times, you'll get a message saying, you know, you have called it too many times wait for this much time before you can invoke more methods. So all of that is handled for you. But the best part that I like about it, so you have all of this built-in capabilities. So, so you want to 
Uh, let me let me sort of motivate this further by giving you a couple more examples. So you, you have this capability of quota is, of course, a canonical example. But what if you want to cache some information, right? You mm. don't see uh, why even go to the back end. You can just cache it, the API management layer. Mm. Uh, another example would be that I, I want to, you know, my back end API is, you know, an on-premises API, which is expecting a SOAP packet, a SOAP payload, if you will. And then I'm trying to expose a common API program where I expect, you know, who wants to be seen with XML or SOAP these days? So everybody wants to send send in a JSON packet, of course. So there is a policy which will take your JSON payload and convert it into a SOAP payload and then appropriately invoke your internal API. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at NCache. NCache is an extremely fast and scalable open source distributed cache for .NET. If your application needs to scale, you need NCache. NCache is actually better than Redis for .NET developers. Check out a Redis comparison online. And a new open source product by the NCache team is NOSDB. That's N-O-S-D-B. This is a NoSQL database for .NET and it outshines MongoDB for .NET developers. There's a comparison with MongoDB online, too. Download both NCache and NOSDB from alachiasoft.com. That's A-L-A-C-H-I-S-O-F-T dot com. Do RSS feeds fall into uh, the API category here? And the, What I'm thinking of is a lot of services that sort of wrap RSS feeds in their own um, you know, their own endpoints so that they can, you know, measure things and do all that, you know, measure downloads and listens and keep track of where people are uh, accessing from, that kind of thing. So, so absolutely, you know, it is an HTTPS or HTTP enabled endpoint at the end of the day. Yeah. So you can, you can expose a method and then connect it to your RSS feed. Now your RSS feed may be public or it may be protected. So you can inject the security uh and then the RSS feed comes back in a certain format. You you'll have to, you know, if if you are wanting to return that format back to your callers from the API management layer, that's fine. But if you want to do something with that format, then you might have to write a policy or something to transform that behavior and you know return a JSON packet, if you will, to your callers. But absolutely, right. Uh, that that would be that would be an example. So. You know, so I gave you a couple of examples of, you know, what is built out of the box. You can just drag and drop and you get these policies. But what the team did, which is really cool, is you you have this notion of uh, a policy expression, which is our good old uh, razor syntax. So you can actually write your own policy expressions, and this can be a single statement or a collection of statement, and they will allow you and these these statements can then use a subset of dotnet classes uh, which makes sense because you know when you're talking about a proxy you have to be careful about not injecting code which can be uh, problematic so there is a subset of classes which is documented so once you have that capability you uh, you can then add custom behavior or to that mix so for example a customer of mine wanted to perform a check where if a JSON packet is coming in and if that JSON packet is of of size greater than some number, okay, they wanted to just simply return the call, uh, reject the call, I should say. And there, there was not at that time 
a policy which I could just drag and drop. So I just wrote some C sharp expressions and you know parse the JSON and then figure out the size and if the size was above a certain threshold, I just rejected it. So there's a lot of power and then you know custom behavior that you can inject as part of policies. Nice. So can we run down some of the behaviors? Like what, what can you describe with a behavior? So uh, by that, uh, Richard, you, you, you question, I'm just trying to better understand it. So you're saying what are the kinds of things we can do? Yeah, what can I define with a policy? Like is it a certain number of usages or usages per hour or per second? Like how do you, what can you put a barrier around and what are the restrictions you can put on? Oh, oh, so oh, good. Okay, thank you for that. Yeah, so for example, there may be a policy which is commonly called the quota policy and you can say uh, you can you can have a lifetime maximum of number of invocations, for right. example. Or you can say uh, there may be a throttling parameter. You, you, can, you can have a really high lifetime invocation and maybe over a period of a month. Or you could say that you can only call me 10 times every 60 seconds. Right. So, so you can, you, all of that is just configurable. You just supply the values that you see, see uh, fit and those policies will then, or that behavior will then be enforced for you. Okay. I mean, then that's where I get into the sort of interesting granularity around, can I pay for a premium service so that I go to the front of the queue or maximum latency? I'm, I'm just thinking about, can we have policies that fully describe a service level agreement? In this case, uh, this policy is really about injecting custom behavior, Richard. Right. It is, I, I understand your question, it's a very good one that ultimately you want to to provide people with sort of, uh, you know, give me an SLA type of a policy. What you do get with this is analytics is sort of built into API management, right? So you can say that how much time did you spend executing this call? How many calls were made? How many returned in, in success? How many right. returned in failure? And you can aggregate them across a client or a tenant. You can, you can aggregate it by the user. And then, of course, you can you can export all of that data. So some of that can go in in your reporting of your SLA and saying, you know, we we agreed upon this SLA, and here is the monthly average, and API management gives you that data automatically. Sure, I mean, I kind of like the idea that I would charge one rate for a failed request and a different rate for a successful request. You know what I mean? Like absolutely, if, yeah. Like you're doing address validation. So if you send me an address and it's invalid, I'll charge you one rate. But if you validate it and it does a bunch of additional work after that, then it's like, well, that costs more. Absolutely. So there is this whole aspect of monetization mm -hmm. uh, with the API, and and people are realizing this that you know I want to publish an API, and I want you to bring me business. If you redirect traffic through your website into my API, you know, as a developer or or as as the originator, I'm going to to pay you back. And you know, keeping track of all that, how many calls came in, how sure. many of are successful, and then you know, some API management. And you know, I was at Ignite, Richard, uh, and the API management team did a session where they presented the roadmap for the next months mm. they talked about how the monetization functionality is being added to api management 
but that's certainly a function where i can you know you know not only on one hand generate invoices for people and say you call me these many times and you owe me this much and by the way this was the average response time on the other mm-hmm. hand you're the people who who sent me users for my api and i generated this much business and now uh, you you get this much amount because you brought this business to us so that's absolutely a function and i don't want to just dive into the cash side of this because i also appreciate that this is a tool set for protecting my infrastructure too that i can i can control runaway apps absolutely you know, you know a bad a bad client i can sort of help to guarantee service between different clients and things like that irrespective of the money side i think the money side is also interesting but it's like if you're exposing an api to the world one way or the other you're building a bunch of this stuff you know so it's in your best interest to to just use it you know uh recruit it rather than write that code that is that is absolutely right because you know if you don't have this layer of protection one of two things need will probably need to take place you probably want to build that throttling into your api implementation and and that is not a good idea of sort of you know putting that code into your business logic no. for whatever the api is but worse you probably don't have that throttling logic and now suddenly somebody is able to you know dos your system by sending you a large number of requests so so in fact i'll go a step further you know and this is through when i started using api management and you know over a course of using it i realized that i almost you know if i'm exposing any kind of api from my project uh, i want to put down the api management layer first and i want to create a facade and even if the backend api that api that i'm building is not ready I want to create a facade and I want to drop a policy which just returns 200 back to my callers within the first few hours of the project so that now I have a public endpoint with a developer portal with 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 a description of what functionality I'm trying to expose and I can send people another team perhaps send them there they can start calling this start coding against it and they'll get 200 of course or 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 whatever logic I want there and then slowly I can start building my backend API and then redirecting the calls to my backend API as they become available. So awesome! It's it's an important step. I think it's an important archit foundational technology that uh, that people should think about. Yeah. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, I must be that happy time again. How did you know? It's time to interrupt this most interesting discussion with an HTTP request. Here we go. Get. Slash API slash jokes slash minimum funny percentage slash two, and the response is two o four. Ah, you know what that stands for? No, no content. <laughs> Success, no oh, content. No, you used HTTP HTTP status code as a joke. No, oh. that's uh, that's not a joke. That's just what happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's actually time to give away a component one studio to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. 
But first, let me tell you about Grape City Active Reports. This is the reporting platform for all your business needs. Design, publish, view, print, and export operational reports, such as invoices, expense reports, tax and government forms, as well as strategic and analytical reports, such as sales performance, budgeting, and revenue analysis. Active Reports gives you the operation and flexibility you need to turn your data into informative, pixel-perfect reports across the enterprise. Check them out at component1.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Mel Hamer. Hey, congratulations, Mel. Congratulations, Mel. Golf clap for you. Yes. And Mel just won the Component One Studio. That's their flagship big old product. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. All right, Vishwas, it's your turn. You got $5,000. You're going shopping. Technology, what do you buy? Uh, I'm going to give my $5,000 for more coding to the humanitarian toolbox. Yeah, dude, nice one. That's awesome. (laughs) Good answer, good answer. Yeah, it's a a great uh, organization. And for those who don't know, this is something that Richard actually started. And now it's a 501c, um, well... 501c3. 501c3 organization. And Richard, just give us a little brief intro. So we are a public charity and we make open source software for disaster relief organizations. We have a bunch of different projects. Some are more preventative, like the Already Project, where we're helping the Red Cross put smoke detectors into homes that don't have them. Uh, Some of them are much more focused on the disaster relief worker on the ground, like our uh, Envoad project called the Crisis Mm. Check-In. We do everything with volunteer development, but uh, we're certainly doing a campaign these days. If you're looking for a place to donate, we are a registered charity. Where does your money go? Primarily to project management these days. We find that developers are much more productive when we organize the projects in great detail with specific issues broken down in the milestones so they know that what to work on where it's going to go and what impact it's going to have um so far so good we've got projects going into production now we are a registered charity with microsoft philanthropies so a lot of the stuff is running in azure i see us becoming a disaster response as a service yeah it's just, you know, instead of the red, instead of us giving the software to the Red Cross and saying good luck, we're just operating it for them uh, on Azure, and uh, wow. they use it as a website and on their phones. It's a lot simpler that way, and we're pretty good at working it that way. And and Microsoft seems to be happy to let us just use Azure that way. But that's what Microsoft Philanthropy is all about. Hey, you know, cut out the middlemen. That's what it's all about. Make it easy. Yeah, remove and- the friction. And, you know, depending on your organization, like Microsoft folks, when they do contribute to projects and they and they do, Microsoft will match them for a certain dollar amount per hour that they contribute. So it actually turns into a donation for us as well. So whether you can donate your time or your money, there's ways to amplify that. And we turn that into tools to save lives. Fantastic. And if you want to get uh, involved in doing hackathons or contributing, you can just go to htbox.org. That's right. And all the projects are living on GitHub at github.com slash htbox. That's awesome. Thanks for the pitch, Darlene. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I talk about it enough, but uh, certainly it's been, uh, it's been a fun ride these days. 
Uh, Richard, it, it's it's been it's followed the organization. It's done great work, and in fact, I was I was submit this link for the show notes later. Just reading an article a couple of days back about uh, cloud for good, and uh, and uh, excellent article about you know the the different things you can do uh, given the global infrastructure and and the capabilities that are available in terms of many of those situations. So it seems like a great use case there. Well, and I feel like the thing that we're doing more than anything at HGBox is is bringing cloud and mobile to the disaster response space. You know, they, they're great people. They're incredibly good at what they do, but they're not on the leading edge of technology. That's not their skill set. So the fact that we can do this work for them and basically give it to them and, and let them, you know, take advantage of it and move that much faster, be that much more effective during a disaster. It's, it's, I feel like we finally get to use our skills. You know, I've done team building exercises with a great set of developers and we've gone and done like Habitat for Humanity, which I think is an awesome uh, charity. But it is a little frustrating to watch a really talented developer paint a fence. You know, yeah. it's it's a good team building exercise, but is it the best thing they could be doing with their skills? Mm. So, you know, actually watching teams of developers sit down and work together on one of our problems and have a really good team building experience, too. Like, in some ways, there's a little less pressure on you when it's not the company software. It's the charity software. And we get pretty high standards of the quality of our code. But it's sort of an opportunity to see how you work together in, in kind of a different environment, typically with leading edge tools like the already projects using ASP.NET Core. So, you know, where you may not be using that internal in, in your organization, you can use it with us and you can use your team, you know, sort of have experience with it in, in advance. So it's been a lot of fun to see the different ways that folks work. And we're talking to a lot of different organizations about how to do more. You know, it's, a, it's interesting as a guy who's built a lot of software and led a lot of teams for years and years. Imagine how you have to approach building software when every developer is a volunteer. And so none of them can really be critical to the process. That documentation and testing and organization are absolutely vital so that the code that does get contributed can be supported by other people. We, mm. we work at that basis with every line of code built in our project. Might be a good uh, opportunity to use the API management features of Azure. It's interesting to think in that, and I, you know, I was thinking exactly that way. It's as we, one of the challenges that disaster response organizations often have is that they're, they tend to be siloed. They have their own systems. And so sharing data between organizations, especially during a crisis, can be very difficult. And so ways to expose APIs into apps with important data to facilitate these organizations collaborating but making sure we don't break anything in the process uh, and, you know, being sure we know who's going in and what they're doing, because often the data can be sensitive. That I know how we could write all that code, but I'd rather not write all that code. Yeah. And, and I'm looking at the API gateway and developer portal site here and going, we can use this. Like, this will make a difference in moving quickly to provide that cap kinds of capabilities. Yep. Yep. And and you know Richard, that's that's what uh, we are finding that you know many organizations, if they look around just internally, there are dozens and dozens of APIs that they've already built. Different groups have built them. They're not consistent. They certainly don't have throttling. They may have a different security requirement. Their payloads may be different. But 
you know, only if that organization is able to channel all of what is existing and sort of make it available to their developers. So many organizations are rolling out an API program and, you know, rather than trying to do these things themselves, it makes sense to start with a service that provides them these capabilities. So we're seeing, we're seeing that a lot. And there's also, uh, if, if, you, if I can just give you one other example of, you know, how this level of interaction comes into play. We were working on a project where we were using machine learning for something. And as you well know, you can train an algorithm and then you can expose that trained algorithm as a, as a web service. And, you know, you don't have to do much. You just have to say, here's my trained experiment, expose it as a web service. And that web service is publicly available, but it does not have all of this things that I talked about, this layer of interaction, the proxy behavior. Yeah. And what we decided early on in the project was we, we wanted to front end or put a facade of API management uh, around this underlying web service, which represented our machine learning experiment. And, you know, it turned out that, uh, you know, our first UI, quote unquote, that we built. So ultimately, we had this trained algorithm and now somebody needs to call it. And we said, well, we can build a very nice uh, website, which will then internally call this service. And, you know, that's how our users will consume this capability. And turned out that, you know, they did not want that website as a separate entity. What they really wanted was, I want this to be embedded directly inside a SharePoint intranet. I don't want people to go to www do this. I want this to be available inside this intranet because this information needs to be available wherever users are. So we said, fine. Because we had this API management layer, Turns out that, well, now we are going to call you from an intranet and the security is pretty important. The data is sensitive. Mm. Well, one of the policies is that only allow people coming in from this IP address range to call my API. Okay. Yeah. So we took that intranet. Uh, we, we provided that IP address range and they wanted one more layer of security. Well, turns out that, you know, maybe you can get yourself a JWT token internally, present this on every API invocation, and we can drop a custom policy which goes and validates your JWT token. And, and you know, if your token is valid, we will allow the call inside. So, you know, by having this level of interaction, it was a matter of dropping these two policies and now, you know, writing a SharePoint web part or what have you to, in, to call our API really became, uh, you know, a trivial matter. If this was not the case, then then we would have to do a lot of rework on this, either sides to make it happen. This reminds me of a story from .NET Rocks from early, early, 2003, 2004, maybe. It was Marcus Egger. He was on the show, and Windows Forms was everywhere. Everybody was doing Windows Forms. And they basically had a strategy for dealing with widespread changes at the last minute, which was... They subclassed all of the controls in Windows Forms. And so instead, and added one more layer of indirection, right? And so instead of using, you know, the, the text box and the button and the label and all that stuff, they had their own versions of it, which just you through inheritance used, uh, um, had, had the base controls as their base classes. 
And then, you know, anytime a customer said, you know, what we really want is we want a, a little blue boundary around every button or something like that. Well, it was one change, one change instead of every button in every project everywhere. Right. You know, and it's the same, the same thing. You're making a wrapper around an existing API. And so that anything that you want to customize or do uh, widespread, it's one change rather than, you know, uh, rather than well, whatever you would do. In this case, so you'd have to change the APIs themselves. Yep, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and changing APIs is always a challenging thing because people have taken a dependency on your old API. Yeah. So you find, I, I generally find people leave the old API in place and make a V2 of the API or, you know, modify names, new parameters, et cetera, and so forth. Because it's mm. almost, you almost can't turn them off or rather you, you don't turn them off just because you made the new one. You only turn them off when you're sure the old one's no longer being used. Yeah. And that that's an important point, which, which uh, you know, folding it back into the API management capabilities. So if you look at Azure API management, there's a concept of APIs, so you can define multiple APIs. But then there's also a concept of products. So you can take a subset of the APIs and expose it to people and say, this is the cold version and you know you get this latest and greatest API, and you get to call it fifty thousand times. And here is another version, which is a starter version, and you have even smaller subset with a different quota associated with that. So you you, you get this packaging option that comes with it as well. You know, thinking internally, which you mentioned earlier, I wouldn't mind using this within a large organization just to know who's utilizing a particular feature or a particular set of APIs and in what quantity. I mean, you could get into billback, right? Where often inside of organizations, IT bills back to individual departments based on utilization. And I've tried to do that sort of stuff with just with straight up logging and analytics. This seems like it's a much more formal way to go about it. That's a great point, right? We, we all build these internal APIs within a large organization and, you know, wouldn't it be great if, if sort of, you know, we, we sort of had hard metrics on, you know, what was the average response time for the, for the API that my group built? Ultimately, you know, and, and, you know, how many people called it and, you know, how many errors were there? It's a great way to data speak for itself and, you know, decide how well you're doing, how much funding and how many, you know, what should be your backlog and all of that. So, so there's some really interesting possibilities that just come out, you know, as a byproduct of having something like API management in front. Yes, absolutely. And plus, there's almost a strength of being having using a third-party management tool here that you kind of trust the numbers more. You're not worried about you put bugs into your API counter. It's like, no, yes. this is kind of a standardized set of tooling here. You don't want to own that code base. And people are a lot more comfortable with validating numbers that way. Yes, that's that's also a very good point. Yes, you want some some independent uh, monitoring and measurement of these uh, these metrics. When you are talking about a public-facing API that you want to make money from, will Azure do the billing? Right now, uh, so that's, that's the feature that I talked about, Richard, that some of this monetization and invoicing is mm -hmm. coming. It's there right now in the product. You might have to write some of the custom code. You can dump it and, you know, go to another SaaS service 
which does invoicing for you, right? So you 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 send a feed to them how many calls were made, and you send them uh, success codes and whatnot, and then you can use one of the SaaS services to generate a bill. But some of that functionality, so I I you know uh, read about the blog, the roadmap, and the monetization capabilities, but right. uh, you know some of that functionality may may very well be coming in future releases. And it'd be super easy if it's just to Azure users already, where you already have all of that. But there's, I mean, they have the infrastructure. It's just a question of surfacing it in a way. But you, you know, the idea that you could make money on a on an Azure exposed API is very interesting. Mm. And, right. And, mm-hmm. Absolutely. In in fact, uh, there is unrelated to Azure API management by itself. You know, so there, there is this notion of the Azure marketplace where you can publish your API and, and you know, get paid for if people right. are using it, right? So, so there, there's that, of course, uh, you know, you might have, uh, you know, some IP, some algorithm, some reference data lookup service that you want to expose as an API. Uh, and you can absolutely put it in the marketplace for discoverability and then, you know, having people call you and then, of course, you will get paid through that mechanism. But, you know, trying to do that for your internal API or an API that just does not sit in Azure uh, through API management, I think some of that may come through this monetization capabilities that I talked about. Yeah, I could see uh, this being a later feature in API management is somewhere there's a publish to the marketplace button. You know, given that you fit certain criteria and the information is available, you know, then it's like literally a product built in the cloud, born in the cloud, sold in the cloud. Like, right? I mean, I look at the, the marketplace is cool. But these are all existing products that have been repackaged for the cloud. I really yes. like the idea of something built, you know, from scratch, live always lived in Azure, and now you can uh, you can actually sell it through Azure as well. Yep. No, that's that's a great suggestion. Uh, you know, I definitely point. Uh, the API management team to to this suggestion, or hopefully they listen to this show. We get some feedback from them. Well, they say smart people listen to this show, so I would I hope. I believe it. <laughs> I'm optimistic. Yeah. No question. So have you got stuff implemented with uh, the Azure API now, Fishwas? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We, we have customers using it and has been around uh, for quite some time. It was actually a startup in Washington, D.C. area oh, yes. that Microsoft acquired. And so, yeah, we, we have been using it quite a bit. And uh, I think you and using it for the protection aspects primarily? Uh, both for the protection aspects, for the quota aspects, uh, the discoverability and the developer portal aspects. So we are mm-hmm. using all of the capabilities there. Yeah, I'm just wondering what the gateway drug is. Like, what's the thing you want the most off the bat? And, and, and my gut says, just make sure you're not killing me. But I think the developer portal part is awfully valuable, too, just helping people understand how to be successful with the API in the least amount of time. True, true. And, you know, whether it is the metrics is equally important as well. So so I think, uh, you know, the the key... Decision point may vary if you you are very concerned about somebody calling you too many times. Maybe you want to start with that throttling capability uh-huh. in the forefront. You know, this idea of having a central portal where you can go search for, have a discussion about things, get the metrics, 
and and by the way you you as a caller get metrics too so right. you know you as an admin will get metrics which are aggregated across multiple callers and organizations but you yourself inside the developer portal can get metrics that gives you your own view of how many times you've invoked the api and you know what was the response time that pertains to your experience right so so that's so, so you know okay, i hate they all getting blindsided at the end of the month kind of thing or getting abruptly cut off hmm. you know I, I really like sending warnings that like you you've you've hit a threshold that is going to limit you hmm. yes yes you know i i like to say this that you know the monthly azure bill has made me a better developer so <laughs> <laughs> dollar per transaction right yeah so, so you know, any insight that people can provide me about how badly I've written code, which is you know calling multiple times, right, is is something that you can take back and look at and say, do you really need to do this? Why am I making these calls? Maybe I, I you know, my retry logic needs to be, uh, you know, a little bit more, uh, you know, careful about how many times. Maybe there should be a circuit breaker in there that hmm. you know, if three times, and you know, I shouldn't be calling this or or something like that. So all kinds of insights that you can derive from the, the bill. Wow, that's cool. So where are you going to be speaking next, Vishwas? I'm uh, going to be speaking at VS Live Orlando, December 8th. I think the conference runs from 5th to 9th of December. Very good. And uh, you're going to be talking about Azure, I take it. I have a couple of sessions on Azure, yes. Great. I have, uh, I have a session, I believe, on cloud-oriented programming, which we have already talked, a topic we have already discussed in the past. Mm. And, and the second topic is really about, you know, people have been building uh, Azure-based applications using cloud services, which is what got us started with Azure. And now, uh, when we talk about sort of the next version of PaaS, you know, so my talk will be about the number of options. There's service fabric, there's app service, there's VM scale sets, and there's, of course, the Docker Azure container service. So talk about all the pros and cons and which ones you should be considering in your journey on PaaS as a, a successor to the technology that you've been using, which is cloud services. Wow. Well, that sounds great. Hey, Vishwas, thanks a lot. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and we always learn something. Thank you very much for inviting me to the great conversation. Thank you. Definitely. You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FC.